3CR Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Burung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. And good morning. And how wonderful to have three people in the studio this morning. Yeah, that's right. You're listening to me, Ella, and I'm here with Judith and Grace. A fun mix. We haven't had the three of us before. A couple of oldies, a couple of newies. Yeah, (laughs) that's great. Yeah, it's been the first time the three of us together. It's like such a bit weird to have like a different mix all the time, but you know, it's good to have everyone here. (laughs) Yeah. Makes it lively. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how has your weekend been, Ella? You're, you've gone away for a few weeks, actually. Yes, I've had a very nice couple of weeks, actually. I had um, yeah, two weeks in New South Wales camping in Airbnb, which is um, very wet but very pretty. Um, yeah. What nice part of New out. South Wales were you in? Uh, around the south coast. So at first we were kind of more inland near Braidwood, if you know Oh, yes, Braidwood. I know it well. Yeah, yeah. very pretty. Um, lots of wildlife. I've seen my fair share of wombats now, so that was Oh, nice. yeah, lots, so, lots <laughs> of wombats around. I always felt like they were a bit of a illusion you'd see the wombat poos around but not see the wombats but this time i saw plenty uh, um such gorgeous creatures yes, love them yeah, yeah um, and kind of unlike anything else as well um yeah um so yeah that was nice though we did do yeah lots of kind of driving around and sitting in country pubs waiting for the rain to pass <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we weren't in our tent the whole time um and yeah then after that we went down um along i believe it's called the sapphire coast so we were staying in Kabar. Um, but yeah, made lots of little day trips out to um, like Bermagui and that kind of area. So yeah, very pretty. Mm, wonderful. It sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. And how about you, Judith? How was your weekend? Well, I had, I had my son visiting from Sydney, which oh, is no, you know, it's always a joy. Yeah. yeah. So that was a busy time. Really, really wonderful. Yeah, and what about you, Grace? I've been busy weekend because um, I have to get my assignments in as usual, typical uni life. Yeah, and um, I'm actually in my last week of semester. Yeah, oh, just have, yeah, so wow. quick, right? It's a and then quick semester. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, tomorrow's my last day of class, and after that, I'll be heading back to Malaysia next month. Oh, yeah, nice. finally getting a break. Yeah, after a long while being here. And when where will you be staying in uh, Malaysia? Like, wh- or will you be traveling, or will you be staying in one place? Oh, I'll, I will be in um, Kuala Lumpur, which is our main capital city of Malaysia. But of course, I'm also doing some interstate travels to east side of Malaysia. Oh, lovely! So that'll be really nice. I haven't gone there in a very long time. Yeah, so I'm very excited to have this holiday <laughs> vacation. Yeah, yeah and you've been working so hard. I mean, your study. And radio and um, yeah, yeah. It's been it's been quite a hectic past few months, but I'm I'm really glad to be doing all this. I feel like I really need this, and it's a good opportunity for me. And I'm also very grateful to have this opportunity. Well, we're very grateful to have you. All. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> a well earned break as well. Yeah. <laughs> yep, lovely. 
Um, so we've got a lot for you this morning, Judith. Yeah, very busy show. <laughs> yeah, busy show. We're we're going to start off with um, a, a chat with Jeff Rawlinson, who's the chair of the Save the Hopkins River Stop the Quarry campaign. So we're just going to hear a bit about uh, you know what's happening on the Hopkins River and why people are so concerned about the quarry. So we'll be doing that first up. On Earthly, then, I'll be speaking to Tyler Roach, the Rivers Campaigner for Environment in Victoria, discussing the works the Victorian government is doing for the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and how this would not actually help with the water recovery, nor improve the impact it has on farming communities and climate change. And then uh, Greg Denham's going to join us, and Greg's you know very familiar with 3CR Wednesday breakfast and Monday breakfast before that, mm-hmm. and uh, he works in the area of of drug policy, but also with on you know street work and a huge range of of issues and background for Greg. So he's going to come into the studio this morning, I think around seven forty five, and tell us about what's happening and and some of the things Co Health is doing. That's where he's based now, uh, in the CBD. Lovely. And then for that, I'll be moving on to speaking to Zelda Grimshaw, the co-organizer of the recent Disrupt Land Forces Expo, discussing the events that occurred and what comes next for the resistance to militarization in Australia. And Ella, your segment? Yeah, and then I'll finish up the show speaking with Matthew Roberts from Sex Work Law Reform Victoria. Um, so we've spoken to Matthew a few times on the show throughout the year. He's kept us updated on the um, a pretty big year, really, in the space of uh, sex worker rights. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's joining us again this morning. Uh, sex Work Law Reform Victoria have written up an election guide ahead of the state election. And so we're going to do some naming and shaming and how, uh, hear how everyone kind of stacks up in terms of their performance for sex worker rights. Yeah, well, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, there's been big changes this year. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look um, forward to hearing. And yeah, of course, sex worker rights are human rights, so we should all listen. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly. Interesting. Well, so before we head on to our segment, uh, segments, uh, we've got a song for you. This is... Moonshine by Nyari. I am night sky.
And that was Nairi with Moonshine. And if you've been noticing the moon the last few nights, it's uh, moving towards a full moon, I think. So, uh, yeah. Look, our first guest this morning on um, 3CR, Wednesday Brecky, is Jeff Rollinson. Jeff's a former Moyne Child Counselor. Sorry, Moynshire Councillor, and currently a land care coordinator in southwestern Victoria. And he's also the chair of the Save the Hopkins River, Stop the Quarry campaign. And he joins us on the line to tell us all what that's all about. So welcome to 3CR, Jeff. Yes, good morning, Judith. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. And thanks for getting up early to, to join us here on Wednesday Breakfast. Yeah, no, not too early uh, for us, some of us folk down here in the country, so no problems. <laughs> yeah. So, Jeff, for people who may not have been there, can you describe the Hopkins River for, for us and, and perhaps, you know, like where it begins, where it ends, and or sort of where it goes out to sea? Yeah, sure. So so ba- basically it's, uh, it's a fairly long river in relative terms, about uh, 271 kilometres in length. Um, and it runs basically north-south, so its source is near Ararat at a place called uh, Telegraph Hill, and then it winds its way down through um, through southwest Victoria. It passes through and by places like Lake Bollock, Mort Lake and Framlingham as it gets uh, closer to the coast, and then it, it emerges at the uh, in the middle of Warrnambool, basically, at uh, the mouth of the Hopkins River, Yeah, huge. And who lives along the river? You know, what kind of country does the river run through? Yeah, look, it's basically uh, agricultural country. Um, so unlike a lot of other rivers that have a lot of vegetation or settlements beside it, 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 it it's predominantly um, running through agricultural country. Uh, but it does, uh, yeah, the biggest population centre would be warnable right down at, uh, at the mouth of the river. Um, you'd have to you'd have to call it a river that, that fundamentally passes through agricultural land, right? And what about tourism? Like, do people come and visit uh, the river? Um, yes, they do at certain points. So, so given the the, the land management um, on either side of the river is private, well, that of course means that there would only be a few points uh, for fishing and tourism opportunities. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly uh, there are. Uh, landmark items or landmark points like Hopkins Falls at Wongoom, which is basically 15 kilometres out of town. Um, along the river, though, you do have a lot of um, a lot of fishes. It's quite popular with anglers, and they're chasing um, yeah all sorts of breeds of fish. So yeah, you'd, yes, you'd have to say that the setting yeah. is yeah, mostly, I think mostly agricultural. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw on the website, or generally when I looked up about the river, that there were certainly people who came t- to fish there. And what you know, aside from fishing, and um, well, maybe what sort of fish? <laughs> let's just let's just uh, hear about that first. What what kind yeah. of fish would they come for? Yeah. So, so the, I guess they're they're targeting black bream. Um, you have estuary perch uh, close to the coast, and also Malawi and. Australian salmon and yellow-eyed mullet. Um, hopefully they're not fishing for <laughs> yarrow pygmy perch, which are an endangered species. Um, I guess one of the most interesting species uh, is the short-finned eel, or the Aboriginal people uh, refer to that as koyang. Um, that does 
uh, that does get, I guess, uh, pursued and, and fished out, or fished, hopefully not fished out by anglers. But it's also very significant uh, to the Aboriginal community as well. Yes, for sure. And what other creatures live in that river? What other creatures inhabit the river? Uh, so you, some of your land-based fauna, you have uh, koalas and wallabies, um, yellow-tailed black cockatoos, latham snipe and uh, wattlebirds. Um, I guess I should make a special mention, not, not in terms of fish, but also the platypus, which in fairly recent times uh, earned a conservation status of vulnerable, so it's now very much on the radar of conservation. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, brim so, and perch would be your main species, I'd say. Yeah, okay. So what's the ecological state of the Hopkins River? I mean, you mentioned it runs through farmland, for example. Um, and, um, yeah, what's its condition? Well, Judith, I hope a lot of your listeners have got a box of tissues sitting near them because it's, not, it's, it's a bit of a sad story, really. Um, the Hopkins River officially is rated as in extremely poor health. Um, now, a lot of that is attributed to the fact that only 5% of the river has natural bush on either side. Uh, so you've got basically 95% of the river exposed to uh, all of the, I guess, the agricultural activities and uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, sediment going to the river through erosion. So it, it does rate very poorly. Um, I think there's 100 reaches in the river, 56, just to break it down a little bit, um, 56 were rated very poor, uh, 38 rated poor and 6 were moderate. Uh, not a single reach of the river, unfortunately, receives a good or excellent rating. Yeah, well, I've got my uh, tissues nearby. <laughs> yeah, so on, the, please, dear. Yeah, so it's not in great shape. And now a quarry has been proposed. Um, uh, who, you know, where would the quarry be located? Uh, so the quarry is located um, would be approximately thirty kilometres upstream from the mouth near the township of Panmure. Uh, sorry, uh, and as as you travel from Melbourne to say Warrnambool, it would be just slightly north of the highway, the five kilometres out of Panmure, uh, and it's located uh, not surprisingly in agricultural country. Yeah, and what impact is that like quarry likely to have on the river itself? Uh, well, where it's located is probably in the worst possible spot you can imagine. It's, uh, it's located only uh, 200 metres from the Hopkins River on the eastern side of the river as it passes past uh, uh, Framingham Forest. And, and that's also the location of one of only two of Victoria's Aboriginal settlements. So by being only 200 metres uh, from the Hopkins River in the forest, uh, we can imagine blasting occurring uh, it's it's just simply not located in the right spot there are plenty of other opportunities and, and land I guess to provide that particular resource yeah so so how have people responded to this news about the proposed quarry I mean you've explained that the river already is not in great shape um, what are people saying about this proposed quarry yeah, so, so the um, the a very high percentage of the nearby landholders are, are opposed to it. Um, and that's not just the, well, what I would call the NIMBY, uh, the NIMBY phenomenon, not in my backyard. 
um, the nearby landholders, land but also a very large number of the local community that also agree it's not in the right spot. Um, and to the extent that our group, Save the Hopkins River, Stop the Quarry group, formed about two and a half years ago, and and based on the number of people that are engaged with the group uh, on social media and also on an organising committee, I think the message is that um, it, it, it doesn't have um, the tick of approval as being an appropriate um, an appropriate uh, activity in that area. Yeah, so the Save the Hopkins River Stop the Quarry campaign uh, was set up, and I noticed on your website you've got about two, more than 2,000 people have signed up to that. Um, so what has the campaign been doing? Uh, so for the past two and a half years, we, we, we've been working with, uh, I guess, experts in various fields, so hydrogeologists looking at the, uh, the effect on the surface water and groundwater. Um, we've had parliamentary petitions uh, in the upper house at, uh, at state government, and, and that received a lot of signatures. Uh, we've received excellent media support uh, throughout the time, and uh, so I guess we've, we've been targeting what would be the main issues, being sort of the effect on water, the effect on uh, the endangered species, the effects of blasting from the sort of a, uh, the uh, dust blowing through the air, uh, and the thing that's really concerning is the is the fact that there's supposed to be a 500 metre buffer zone around the quarrying activity area, but uh, the uh, the tribe just recently voted five two to support it, even though they're not going to make it uh, make the final decision. Uh, so yes, you'd have to say that in summary. A lot of people have been working very hard and, and mobilised very early in the piece to, to try and stop this uh, this enterprise. And w- where are things at the moment regarding decision making? Like, when are you likely to hear the uh, you know what's going to happen? Yeah, so we're very close to, I guess, the uh, D Day, D being Decision Day, with a five day hearing at VCAT in mid November. Uh, and it's at that point where the VCAT tribunal will have a bit of a look at um, at Moinshire's sta- stance on it, uh, and also just in the last few days, a cultural heritage management plan has been issued and, and, and uh, provided to VCAT as well. So that's an important step in that uh, it's a uh, it's consideration of, of the effects on on the uh, cultural. Aboriginal cultural aspects of the project. And so in four or five weeks' time, we'll know, know the result. But um, we're up against it, basically, given that the CHMP or cultural plan has been provided and, and there was a, uh, an overwhelming vote to support from the Shire. And yes. our, our view, uh, and the view of many, is that economic considerations have well and truly trodden over the top of environmental and cultural matters. I mean, it's a familiar story, isn't it? And uh, one that has caused a lot of concern. And there have been a number, you know, across Victoria, a number of proposals for quarries, I've noticed, and a number of communities that are 
trying to prevent it, trying to stop it. But the government, seems, Victorian government, seems to think it needs these materials. I'm just wondering, Jeff, surely in this day and age there are options, other options available than to digging out, you know, <laughs> digging things out of the ground. Are you aware of any other possibilities? Um, yes. Uh, well, and yes, I'm familiar with some of those other issues. Look at Wallen and some of those. They, it, it's extraordinary that these are of the new quarry to establish a new quarry or to expand an existing quarry and it's extraordinary uh, and I, I guess the um, I guess the position of the state government is they're desperate for material for things like the big build in Melbourne so so it's it's a, a quest for resources that's really driving the agenda rather than sort of paying attention to the environmental stuff and and um, sorry, I'll just. I'm sorry to interrupt, but also, you know, the views of communities that have been, you know, acting to try and prevent these things from going ahead. I mean, how does that count in this picture? And it seems like it's not getting a lot of attention. No, it's not. Uh, and in terms of alternatives, the answer is yes. I mean, the in Warrnambool and other places around Victoria, the uh, recycled plastic and, and other materials are making their ways uh, their way into road making materials. And so I think that um, it's only early days in terms of the percentage of material provided uh, of that nature. But I think that there's, um, there should be an onus on the governments to start looking for some of those alternative resources and ramp it up so that you don't have the current situation where you've got these inappropriate quarrying proposals that are, that are creating havoc or environmental havoc, at least, uh, around the state. Yes. So, I mean, the decision, the D-Day, as you describe it, is close and we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that. But just tell me, Jeff, what's going to be lost if this quarry goes ahead? Well, I think what's going to be lost is um, that, well, from some of the feedback from, I guess, the Aboriginal community, what's going to be lost is a lot of... um, I guess cultural values that are very important to them, and, and and in that situation, we're talking about having a peaceful setting in the bush to, you know, to, to fish in the river or to walk along and um, to, to, you know enjoy the, the changing song lines. Uh, you're going to see some unhappy farmers who will notice big changes to their hydrology and bore levels dropping dramatically. Um, so they're they're going to there's going to be a different environment, and very much so uh, yeah. around uh, when and if the quarry proceeds. Oh well, look, we will be keeping an eye on this, Jeff. And thanks so much for coming on to Three CR this morning to tell us more about it. I mean, sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind. You know, if people haven't been visiting the Hopkins River or or even visiting Warrnambool lately, although I'm sure with summer coming on, more people will be on the road and uh, become aware. And I know you've got some signs up for your campaign there. So uh, we'll be, um, yeah, we'll be following this with interest. Thank you so much for your time this morning. And thanks for bringing it to the attention of your listeners, Judith. We much appreciate that. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. And I think we've got um, a song called Born on a River that's coming up now.
Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Back when Eisenhower was the president, golf courses is where most of his time was spent. So I never really listened to what the president said because in general I believed that the general was politically dead. But he always seemed to know when the muscles were about to be flexed. Because I remember him saying something, mumbling something about a military industrial complex. Americans no longer fight to keep their shores safe just to keep the jobs going in the arms-making workplace. And then they pretend to be gripped by some sort of political reflex. But all they're doing is paying dues to the military-industrial complex. 
military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. The military and the monetary get together whenever they think it's necessary. They turn our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet to a cemetery. The military and the monetary use the media as intermediaries. They are determined to keep the citizens secondary. They make so many decisions that are arbitrary. We're marching behind the commander-in-chief who was standing under a spotlight shaking like a leaf. But the ship of state had landed on an economic reef, so we knew he was going to bring us messages of grief. The military and the monetary were shielded by January and went storming into February. Brought us pot-bellied generals as luminaries. Two weeks ago, I hadn't heard the sumbitch. Now, all of a sudden, he's legendary. They took the honor from the honorary. They took the dignity from the dignitaries. They took the secrets from the secretary, but they left the bitch an obituary. The military and the monetary from thousands of miles away in a Saudi Arabian sanctuary had us all scrambling for our dictionaries because we couldn't understand the fucking vocabulary. Yeah, there were some smart bombs, but there were some dumb ones as well. Scared the hell out of CNN in that Baghdad hotel. The military and the monetary, they get together whenever they think it's necessary. War in the desert sometimes sure is scary, but they beamed out the war to all their subsidiaries. Tried to make so damn insane a worthy adversary, keeping the citizens secondary, scaring old folks into coronaries. The military and the monetary from thousands of miles in the Saudi Arabian sanctuary kept us all wondering if all of this was really truly necessary we've got to work for peace peace ain't coming this way if we only work for peace if everyone believed in peace the way they say they do we'd, we'd have peace the only thing wrong with peace is that you can't make no money from it the military and the monetary they get together whenever they think it's necessary they've turned our brothers and sisters into mercenaries they are turning the planet into a cemetery got to work for peace. Peace ain't coming this way. We should not allow ourselves to be misled by talk of entering a time of peace. Peace is not the absence of war, it is the absence of the rumors of war and the threats of war and the preparation for war. Peace is not the absence of war, it is a time when we will all bring ourselves closer to each other, closer to building a structure that is unique within ourselves because we have finally come to peace within ourselves. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Get together whenever they think it's necessary. They have turned our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning parts of the planet into a cemetery. What you gonna do? Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. We hounded the Ayatollah religiously, bombed Libya and killed Gaddafi's son hideously. We turned our back on our allies, the Panamanians, and saw Ali North selling guns to the Iranians. Watched Gorbachev slaughtering the Lithuanians. We better warn the Amish, they may bomb the Pennsylvanians. The military and the monetary. Get together whenever they think it's necessary. They have turned our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet. To a cemetery. They got folks out there working for war. Two, three, four. Make a whole lot of money, start a little trouble, it's war. Turn this planet in the north and south, it's war. Start a few rumors over there, make money with.
don't sound like no late night commercial, but it's a uh, matter of fact that there are thousands of children all over the world in Asia and Africa and in South America who need our help. When they start talking about 55 cents a day and 70 cents a day, I know a lot of folks feel as though that's, 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 not, that's not really any kind of contribution to make, but we have to give up a dollar and a half just to get in the subway nowadays. This is a song about tomorrow and about how tomorrow can be better if we all, each one reach one, each one try to teach one. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. Everyone must play a part. Everyone got to go to work. Work for peace. Spirit say work. And that was Gil Scott Heron with Work for Peace 1994. And we are still working for peace and against militarization here in Australia, as we've heard over the last week on 3CR. And before that, we heard Born on a River by Nick Murphy and the program. And at the very beginning of the show, Jeff Rowlandson joined us, and he's the chair of the Save the Hopkins River Stop the Quarry campaign. Yep, and now we'll be moving on to our next segment. Um, the Murray River is one of the largest navigable, navigable rivers, and recently the Victorian government released a frontier economic report that mentions plans for water recovery in the basin. Today I'm here speaking with Tyler Roach, the river campaigner for Environment Victoria, discussing the report, and whether would this help with the water recovery or improve the impact it has on farming communities and climate change. Hi Tyler, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Good morning, Grace. Good morning, Tyler. So sorry to be taking a bit more of your time today. Um, so could you just briefly explain what the report was about in terms of the water recovery for the Moray Darling? Yeah, so essentially one of the problems with the Moray Darling is there's not enough water available for the environment flood into wetlands, anabranches, and backwaters as it needs to. So one of the key parts of the basin plan is about setting aside enough water for the river to survive and do all the ecological functions that it needs to. Um, The basin plan itself doesn't set a target that's quite high enough to really guarantee any outcomes, but it's a good start. Um, Where this report comes in is there's a few different ways to think about how to set that water aside. The most cost-effective way and reliable way is about purchasing water directly from willing sellers. So what that means is really there's a lot of farmers out there who just want to sell a bit of their water share and are happy for that to be set aside for the environment. They go on and do other things with that money most of the time stay in farming. But there's been a few other proposals 
that are mostly about irrigation efficiency work, mm-hmm. on-farm efficiency upgrades and off-farm efficiency, like channel upgrades, um, which tend to be expensive and a lot more difficult to figure out how much water you're actually saving. But those are the projects that big irrigator lobby groups tend to prefer. So the Victorian government has put out this report, which is really kind of like a not quite there as far as a lot of the economics goes, uh, basically just to justify the anti-buyback water recovery approach they've been taking and maybe stick with either not doing it at all or doing methods that tend to be a bit larger in terms of handouts that are more likely to go to corporate agribusinesses. I see. So, and then this is what you have considered as a cost of inaction, is that correct? Exactly. So, yep. Could, the main um, thing me- to think about here is, mm-hmm. oh, sorry. Uh, um, you yeah, yeah, continue, sorry. The main thing to think about is when it comes to the basin plan, it's really about restoring those, a semblance of those natural flows that the river needs to survive. Um, the floodplains rely on a natural cycle of the water rising, moving out through flood runners, inundating wetlands and receding back. And right now there's just not enough water to do that, set aside for the environment. And it's even the water that has been set aside because of constraints on the river, um, the possibility of landholder lawsuits, all that water can't get over the banks downstream. It's only 2% of the floodplains getting the water it needs. Um, And when we think about what we should be doing now, really the basin plan is just a first step. And this report, which is basically arguing for a bit more of Victoria's do-nothing policy, just isn't going to cut it when you think about there's some fish with short reproductive life cycles um, that can go locally extinct in three years. So we spend more time not recovering the water the river needs. It's not without consequence. I see. And then um, with the water not being enough and obviously summer coming by and um, drought is also going to be possibly a problem, how is this going to affect um, the people who rely on the river, especially the farming communities? Yeah. So it's it's been wet recently. So a lot of folks have the water they need. There's a lot of water in the system. Um, the key thing that I think about with with this is that every time we're not getting the water the river needs, we're missing a chance to build resilience into the system for when that next big drought hits. So right now there's a there's a good amount of water going down the river. Um, I'm looking at it right now. Um, but it's just really getting into those floodplains and backwaters that should have had it last year, maybe. So you know, the birds are arriving, but it could have been a chance to have one of those really big bird breeding events. Um, and the water birds across southeast Victoria have climbed some 90% in the past 40 years. So every chance we're missing to really help build resilience into the ecosystem, it's going to show in the next drought. I see. And obviously... Um... Yeah, the, the the they're not just the people that are going to be affected, but also um, the nature around and without the water. Um, getting back to possibly it is 
um, recovery rate, it's going to be really bad. And then um, you also mentioned something about a delay tactic. So what's going to happen with this? Yeah. So with the Basin Plan, essentially politicians used to talk about delivering it on time and in full. And what that meant was setting aside a decent amount of water for the river, making sure it can flow downstream, and doing all of that by the end of June 2024. At the start of the Basin Plan, Victoria and New South Wales were pretty unhappy with the target that was set. And so just to put it in context, the best science at the time said you needed somewhere from about 7 to 14 Sydney harbors um, of water to the size of the river. The plant chose a target that was closer to about 6, so below what the low confidence figure was to really have confidence in keeping the river alive. But even that level was higher than New South Wales and Victoria wanted at the time. So they eventually devised this adjustment mechanism, which really is a water offsetting approach that involves a series of projects, some good, some bad, some very complicated, none of them having any signs behind them to say they're worthy of an offset. But what's happened is they've really just stalled on those projects for years and years and years. Um, we're 10 years into the basin plan now. And at this meeting today, all the water ministers from basin states and the federal minister will be meeting in Canberra. And the key thing we expect them to be talking about is Victoria and New South Wales asking for more time to deliver these water offset projects that are have never been tested to see if they actually provide real-world outcomes outcomes in terms of the water that they're offsetting. I see. Yeah, and, and it's going to be really upsetting if like, if they ask for more time, but then it's still not going to be delivered. Um, the water recovery plan isn't going to be delivered as it's meant to be. So let's hope that um, the Murray-Darling actually gets the recovery that it deserves. Um, well, thank you so much, Tyler, for um, um, speaking in to me, with me. Um and yeah, thank you so much for this and hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, Grace. Thank Thanks you, Tyler. for the opportunity. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, thank you so much, Tyler. Um, that was Tyler Roach, the Ravens campaigner for Environment Victoria. You can follow them via Twitter at EnviroVic, which is E-N-V-I-R-O-V-I-C. Or you can head on to their website called Environment Victoria at .org.au. And I just wanted to give a quick update for some weather we can expect in um, Melbourne and Victoria over the next couple of days. Now seemed like a good time, given we've had all this talk about water. Um, we are uh, expecting sorry, some pretty heavy rainfalls, so it's part of this La Nina and also part of the Madden-Julian Oscillation, two weather patterns tying into one. Um, so there are flood warnings over some areas of New South Wales and northern Victoria. Um, some residents are being asked to prepare for up to 72 hours of isolation. 
Um, and yeah, down here in Melbourne, I think we can just expect some heavy rainfall and thunderstorms over the next couple of days. So a reminder. Yeah, I mean, it's been very worrying seeing yeah. the floods, what's been happening in New South Wales and now Northern Victoria and now, um, yeah, very close. Yeah, to, it's to been pretty home. relentless. Um, yeah, so, yeah, for sure. So we, we've been talking water so far this morning, rivers and uh, water conservation and uh, yeah, huge issue. Absolutely. Coming up now, we're going to have uh, Greg Denham in the studio just after this announcement. Since opening its doors in 1987, Ross House has become an important part of the fabric of Melbourne. The organisations operating from Ross House form an eclectic patchwork of multicultural groups, self-help groups and small community organisations committed to social justice and environmental sustainability. Organisations such as the International Women's Development Agency, Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and the Wilderness Society have all called Ross House home. To find out more, please visit rosshouse.org.au. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. In the lead up to the state election, join the Homes Not Prisons campaign for street theatre, speeches from people with a lived experience of criminalisation and a rally demanding investment in Aboriginal community controlled public housing for criminalised women and their families. 4pm on Friday 14th of October at Parliament Steps in Nam, Melbourne. Keep the pressure on. Fund communities, not prisons and police. Friday 14 October, 4pm, Parliament Steps. Homes Not Prisons is a 3CR supporter. Trivia's back, baby. Done by Law's legendary trivia night returns Friday the 21st of October at Collingwood Town Hall. Expect an evening of sparkling wit, cunning competition, and of course, the glorious glory of sweet, sweet victory. Will it be yours? You'll have to come along to find out. Is this your first year? Welcome. You might just be the best among us, but you'll have to strut your stuff to prove it. Let's get together to raise much-needed funds for the incredible 3CR Community Radio. 3CR is 100% community-controlled and relies on annual fundraising to keep its amazing local content on air. Book individually or register a team of up to 10 people for Done By Law's Trivia Night. Tickets available online. Follow the links from the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. And joining me in the studio now is Greg Denham. And Greg, well, first of all, thanks, Greg, for coming into the studio. It's always fun to have people come right in and we can sit here and chat face to face. So thanks for making the time this morning. Thanks, Judith. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So Greg Denham is Co-Health Community Partnerships Facilitator and based in the CBD and the City Streets Health Program. 
So um, I'm thinking, Greg, could you, first of all, just tell us a bit about your role as CoHealth's Community Partnerships Facilitator? That's a big title. (laughs) What does your work entail? Well, the role really is about bridging, um, I guess, well, a gap or perceived gap between the service delivery um, of our health services in the city um, and how we engage and work with the partners um, that, that we believe are important in the city, um, particularly um, people that live, work or are connected to um, the Melbourne CBD. So um, the, the role really is about, um, I guess, breaking down some of those barriers and, and uh, misconceptions about what services are provided and also uh, educating and making people more aware about what they can do to address some of the issues in the city, particularly with people who've got drugs, alcohol, mental health and homelessness issues. Right. Okay. So, Alcohol uh, Health endeavours to provide a kind of wraparound service that, to deal with these things. So uh, that's what I understand, at least. Yeah. So, so what does that mean, a wraparound yeah. service? It, it's um, an interesting term. The the idea is that we provide a comprehensive program, healthcare program, to people who um, have multiple and complex needs. So the wraparound service is really, um, I guess, for want of a better word, a consortium of, of workers who um, can address the various issues that people have. And uh, that, that includes um, outreach workers, peer um, harm reduction workers who work on the streets. We have uh, nurses as well. Uh, we have a doctor. And we have connection to allied health professionals as well. So the, the wraparound service is providing a holistic um, healthcare service to people who um, are, are mostly um, disadvantaged, street-based people in the city area. Right. And so what are the issues that your organisation is currently seeing? Like what's happening now on the streets and the CBD? Well, we're still seeing a lot of uh, drug use. We're still seeing a lot of people who um, have mental health issues. And we still see people who are homeless. So that there are a number of programs that are um, targeted towards um, people who um, are experiencing those difficulties and, and the risks and harms from drug use. So we're, we're really focused around, um, I guess, illicit drug use more, more than alcohol. Uh, but many people that we deal with have, I guess, histories around um, illicit drug use, but they also use other substances as well. And, of course, combined with mental health issues, we... We find that um, often, you know, that there are people in the city area, um, people that, that live or work in the city, have have a misunderstanding about what what is going on with people. So, um, our services really are street based focused services. So we walk around the streets, we engage with people, we build that relationship, we develop a, a level of trust with people and then we can identify their needs and, w- and work with them about addressing those needs. And, th- and they can be quite complex at times. So Yes, and you mentioned um, that, uh, you know, the use of drugs in particular, I mean, and combined with mental health issues, and I guess the drug use is often a, a kind of self-medication to of deal, to deal with right. past issues yep. that people have experienced yep. as well as current ones. Yes, of course, that's right. So we um, it's hard to know kind of the, the chicken and the egg type scenario about what came first, but often people do use substances to self-medicate if they've got mental health issues and mental health histories, and... Uh, we often find that that can maybe um, uh, address the issue, but but inevitably it becomes part of the problem for many people. So they become 
dependent, chronically dependent on the drug as well, and they get into a cycle around their drug use. So, um, and that cycle becomes, uh, I guess, a way of life for many people. And th- and there's often other background issues there as well um, with a person who may be um, finding themselves on the streets. And, and it can happen to um, anybody at any age. It's not just confined to young people or, or you know. Um, people in their 30s and 40s, and we, we have found that there are people much older who find themselves in those situations as well. So you're right, the, the, the self-medication, the dealing with um, particularly the mental health issues, often um, is, is about people um, drug-seeking and getting involved with, with, I guess, the drug market, which in itself can be quite problematic. Yes, Getting indeed. involved with the drug market yeah. itself can be quite... Yeah. The fact that you know, people are, are, are using an illicit substance can, in many cases, cause excess, additional harms. Yes, of course, and especially when the drug is illegal and uh, they then are immediately involved in the criminal economy. That's right, yeah. yeah. And uh, we know that there are many, many harms that re- result from engagement with the criminal justice system. Yes. So we, we, we um, ensure that, as best we can, that the, the health needs of the person is met. Um, and we do work with, with police and others around the city and, and engaging around how we work best with people who, um, particularly people that, that come to the attention of police. Um, so we work, work closely with police around how do we address the health needs of people. So the, the focus is around health, not, not the criminal justice system. We want to get people out of that system. Yes. And of course, there's been a, a report recently from the coroner's court regarding overdose. What did we find out from that? Well, we still have 500 people a year who are um, dying from um, an overdose situation. So that includes all drugs. But, you know, a third of those is directly directly related to heroin use. But we know that a significant number of people that, that die from uh, drug overdoses have a history of heroin use. So um, so the, the overdose situation is quite complex. It's, it involves a number of different substances. Um, and that, that has been consistent over the last few years, that, yeah. that we have... Um, you know, we have literally had, since 2011, thousands of people die, double the amount that the road toll each year from overdose. And right. we, need, we need to really have a, a focused approach around how we deal with that. Yes, and of course the um, medically supervised injecting room was a response to overdose that was set up in June, I think, oh sorry, um, yeah, around June 2018. I think yeah. I've got my, my figures right there. And it was reviewed in 2020. So what did the reviewers find? Well, um, the reviewers found that the uh, centre there was working quite well. It was doing what it was supposed to do, and it was preventing people from dying. They haven't had an, an overdose death in that centre. So, and it deals with something like two, three hundred people a day go into that service. So it's very, very busy. They also recommended that there are other sites be set up and considered by the government, including one in the CBD. So CoHealth would like to think that they're in a very good position um, should that decision be made around um, setting one up in the city, but we're still waiting to um, get the results of a um, a um, research being conducted by a former police officer, Ken Lay, who's doing a feasibility study. So we're still waiting for the results of that. First. Right. Um, but given the level of overdose that we're talking about, it seems like something more is, is needed urgently. Well, uh, the latest research shows that um, in a year there's 3,000 calls for service for ambulances for illicit drugs in the city. So that's, that's a lot of calls for service. 
So yeah. we're still getting a high demand on emergency services around overdoses in the city. And one of the issues that an injecting room or a, 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 you know, an overdose prevention room, as we like to call it, uh, will address are those calls for service, from, particularly yeah. from ambulances. Look, we're, we're going to run out of time, but I think there's a new sobering up service that's been provided, and we really want people to understand about that. Yeah, just quickly. Um, it's in Yarra. So it works here and it's run by CoHealth. So it works from Thursday to Sunday and a nurse and a harm reduction overdose practitioner um, work with um, licensed premises, police and, uh, and other services to um, take an approach towards public um, intoxication, which doesn't involve um, arrest. It's about uh, taking people to a centre where they can sober up. And it's also um, uh, focused around um, Aboriginal people as well. So there's two different services operating. Um, one is focused around Aboriginal people, so it's it's um, sensitive around around that that culture. So and, and those issues. So um, so yes. Yeah, so the service is now um, able to be contacted, um, and it and it's a, a real change because we're one of the few states that actually still has criminal offences for public drunkenness, which will That's be so regressive. I, I mean, that is hard to believe. I know. And we've heard terrible stories just even over the last year about people dying or, you know. Yeah, and this, is, yeah. this came about from those recommendations from the coroner's court, so yeah. that we have a sobering up program. And next year, at the end of next year, it looks like we'll have the decriminalisation of um, public drunkenness in Victoria. Oh, about so. time. But tell me, how, what's the, is there a phone number for Yes, there this? is. It, yeah. it, you can call 9448 and it works from Thursday to Sunday, and it works from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. So if you contact that number during that time, it's relayed to our team, and our team can respond. And and you don't, you know, you, we we would like to get people who are in situations where someone is obviously um, intoxicated and unable, and they uh, uh, to um, assist themselves, and uh, they need help. So yeah. So just to give us that number again, Greg. Nine four four eight five eight four five. Fantastic. Thank you so much for Thanks coming for the this morning. Yeah, it's great. Great for you to come in today. Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs, and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR support. Throughout October, VACA is hosting a series of rainbow yarning workshops for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. The workshops will include guest speakers presenting on a range of topics for LGBTIQA communities and support services. To take part, visit the Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency's Facebook page to register. The Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency is a 3CR supporter.
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash koori-kids-shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. We always give a lot to people who just don't deserve it Still we gotta learn to love one another Not divided by our race or our colour Cause in the end of our sisters and brothers and colours Can't stop us from loving each other I was born in a world so cold But that's life as we've all been told But it's a living when the food is in your kitchen And the only way to get it is when drugs get sold I wasn't born with a silver spoon Or a house that had five bedrooms I was raised with a gummy set goons With the rise of the sun and the fall of the moon And this life seems oh so crazy Sixteen nearly had my first baby Seventeen selling dough from the house Putting tears in the eyes of the woman that made me And this life seems oh so crazy This life seems oh so cold This life might one day break This life might take my soul This life seems oh so crazy and this life seems oh so crazy And this life seems oh so crazy This life seems oh so cold This life might one day break This life might take my soul And this life seems oh so crazy And this life seems oh so crazy No justice, no peace, no voice, no speech No point in even trying to speak unless you show an ID to the pump police They got us locked in chains, it all seems strange So your brother goes in and he leaves insane Things will never be the same until he ends the cycle of the system's game of victim's pain In the ghetto, never said much, was a quiet little fellow All song low, cool, calm and mellow Tattered on his arm was a red, black and yellow Where he wears his pride Deep inside, an intelligent mind just lost in time All I really had was a beat and a rhyme And a mother that did anything to watch him shine This life of mine Ain't the one that I thought it would be Popping them bottles and smoking that weed Things don't always be what they seem This world I see Ain't gonna last too long and I must be a fool to really think that I could have changed it all with a song, but still I try. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so cold. This life might one day break. This life might take my soul. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so cold. This life might one day break. This life might take my soul. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy.
listening to 3CR Breakfast. I'm Ella and apologies for the little break we had there. Um, A couple of changes to the plan this morning, but we're going to jump straight into our interview with Matthew Roberts now. Uh, So Matthew Roberts is the policy advisor with Sex Work Law Reform Victoria. Uh, We've spoken to him on Wednesday Breakfast a couple of times this year. It has, of course, been a big year in that space with sex work decriminalisation passing Victorian Parliament earlier this year. Uh, But the work never stops, they're still going, and Matthew's here to tell us about the latest work, an election guide ahead of the upcoming state election. So, good morning and welcome to Wednesday Breakfast, Matthew. Thank you for having me, Ella. Now, um, this is a really good list. I'm excited to jump into um, some naming and shaming later on in the show today. I imagine you um, had quite a good time putting it together. (laughs) Um, But first up, I just wanted to talk about why it was so important to make a list like this. Um, And we should point out that it's important for sex workers, but it's also important for everyone because, as you often say yourself, uh, sex worker rights are human rights. So tell us about how this list came about. Yes, the list came about because... We had been working for four years since the last election very hard on lobbying all of the political parties to decriminalise sex work. And we realised that sex workers' rights are human rights, as you say, and that a lot of these indicators about who was doing well for sex workers, it's a pretty good indicator on how the politicians and parties will, will perform on other areas of human rights, whether it's women's rights, trans rights... LGBTIQ rights, animal rights, or even the environment. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, maybe we can um, talk about the methodology a little bit. Um, We should point out that you're not affiliated with a political party. And I think one of the few perks of receiving no funding from the government is you can um, talk with credibility when it comes to these issues. Um, So what were some of the issues you were looking at when you um, ranked and named and shamed? Yes, um, it is a it it, um, it is a bit of a naming and shaming, and that was in some senses therapeutic. It's it's a bit of a change for sex workers to be rating the performance of their elected leaders. So we focused on what was available in the public record, so voting records, Hansard's speeches, press releases, members' statements, social media, things like that, things that we could verify and that we could use it as evidence in the public realm. We didn't look at private conversations or private meetings and things like that. And were you also looking at um, the way politicians have spoken publicly or was it just the um, decisions they've made or the way they've voted on certain bills or issues? No, it was certainly we also did take into consideration what they what they said in the public realm, because when it comes to sex work, which is a highly stigmatized community, words and rhetoric matter. And the way that our elected leaders talk about sex workers leads to how sex workers can be treated in their personal and working lives. And so that can go both ways. That can go in a positive way or in a negative way. So as a stigmatised community, we were very sensitive to and aware of the language being used to speak about us, and that did form a part of our guide, and we actually do quote some of the MPs in the guide. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, as you said, words matter and attitudes, um, yeah, are a pretty good indicator of um, where someone's priorities lie, and, yeah, I think uh, often a better informer of how someone is likely to vote in the future. Yes, um, I'm just going to jump in there yeah, and do. say it really, you mentioned, Matthew, this is a stigmatised industry and that, that, were, that were those words, that language continues that process, which is so unfortunate. Absolutely. And um, let's jump into some ranking, Matthew. Can you tell us how, how did the political parties stack up? Yes, so no surprises for guessing that the party that did best was the Re- Fiona Patton's Reason Party. Fiona Patton, as some of your listeners may know, is a former sex worker herself and has prioritised um, the sex work issue. She conducted the independent review of um, sex work in 2020 that led to the decriminalisation of sex work. Animal Justice Party, um, the Labor Party, the governing Labor Party and the Liberal Democrats also got an excellent score. At the bottom of the um, list, we have the Liberal Party, the Nationals, and the very bottom with a terrible score was the Democratic Labor Party that has one representative named Bernie Finn. Yeah, we were um, both there on the day of um, uh, the day legislation was voted for the sex work decriminalisation bill. Um, and I think Bernie Finn really stood out to all of us as being particularly um, reprehensible. And some of the comments that were made were pretty shocking. So, um, yeah, no surprises to find him on the bottom. Um, any parties we might be surprised about with the ranking? I think um, uh, one that stuck out, stuck out for me was the Greens Party, who still did all right in the end, um, but they don't have a clean slate when it comes to sex worker rights, do they? 
No, they don't have a completely clean slate with sex worker rights. And as you alluded to before, Ella, um, when when we were talking, uh, we're an unfunded organisation. We don't receive or have any affiliation with any political party. And so we were able to really openly and honestly critique and call out every political party, including the Greens. And we would have been dishonest to not mention the Greens' very patchy history on sex work rights. Uh, a number of times in the past 15 years, the Greens pre-selected radical feminist anti-sex work candidate Kathleen Maltzahn, who um, would like to have the Nordic model of laws where all sex work is illegal. And more recently, a Greens councillor, Wes Galt, has uh, voted against uh, sex work decriminalisation and um, pro-sex work changes at the council planning level. So there's overall, we gave them a, um, a very good score and we pointed to the fact that they had excellent speeches in Parliament and they voted really well. But there's a couple of um, areas for improvement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, it's important we acknowledge all the um, yeah differences within a party. Um, and when it comes to electorates, are there any particular electorates you have your eye on? Are there any particularly close calls at the moment? Yes. So, I mean, I look, I, I can't, I'm not qualified to, to say which is, a, which is going to be close or not. But one of the electorates that um, I think is going to be really significant is the Lower House District of Ringwood in Melbourne's Outer East. Outer East. There we've got Labor's Will Fowles, who's a pro-sex work candidate, up against the Liberal Party's Cynthia Watson, who is a fiercely anti-sex work Christian Conservative candidate. And so I feel that that particular seat is significant because well, we'd ideally like to make sure uh, we'd, we'd like to avoid a large number of anti-sex work uh, MPs coming into Parliament. And I think Ringwood is one seat to look at. I think it'll be quite close in the end. Mm. And Ringwood, um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, they have a pretty um, conservative past and a pretty uh, anti-sex work past. Or there's a fair few um, people in the council who have some pretty damaging views. Is that right? Yeah, so the, the Ringwood district, um, which is where um, the, this election in November um, will be voting for people in that district, but the Liberal Party candidate, Cynthia Watson, is currently a councillor at the city of Borondara, which is in the inner east. And the council that she's a part of has, in my estimation, been the most anti-sex work council in suburban Melbourne. Wow. And there's, there's a... Um, it appears that there's a culture there that is really quite conservative and um, those views haven't really been challenged or questioned in the council. So it just continues on to be a consistently conservative council with prayer at Christian meetings, opposing public housing and opposing anything that could benefit sex workers. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty damning. And um, to... Um develop this list and um, yeah, develop your rankings. You're looking at past performance, though, of course, um, we're kind of looking to the future now with these current elections. Um, so are there any particular issues you're wanting to see brought forward in the next few years? And where are you setting your sights next? Yes. Yeah, so if we just look at the Victorian 
um, parliament level, so that at the state level of government, the issues that they have responsibility for that could help is far more engagement and work with WorkSafe Victoria to make their staff trained to understand how to engage with the sex industry. We need more resourcing and um, training of Victoria police officers to make sure that they know how to engage in, a, in a, an appropriate way with sex workers to make them comfortable to report crimes. We need continuing resourcing to the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission to help anti-discrimination complaints. Uh, and we need, I guess at the state level, those would be the main things, I think. Anti-discrimination law, I think, is going to be a really uh, tough area. We have the laws in place now, Ella, but now it's about enforcement and, mm. and supporting sex workers to assert and enforce their rights when they face discrimination from a bank or anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at um, kind of strengthening some of those anti-discrimination protections for sex workers. Yeah, to me, it's, it's about enforcement and education. So it's about, we have the laws there, making sure that all sex workers um, have education and are aware of their rights and aware of who to go to and how to enforce them and providing um, the relevant bodies with additional staff and training on how to work with sex workers to for those rights to be enforced. This past four years of the parliament, Ella, has been, in my view, one of the most pro-sex work parliaments in the world. Mm. The achievements that we've had in the last four years are really remarkable. And I'm proud that our team has been in and out of those parliament doors, you know, more than 50 times doing all that hard work with all sides of politics. And I want to keep up the momentum. I want to keep this parliament on guard, keep on reminding them what their obligations are to all Victorians, including sex workers. We've, we've done some fantastic things in this state. We should all be proud. And we need to keep up the work and keep up the pressure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, yeah, been a very motivating year and I can see why you want to capitalise on it. And Matthew Judith here again. You've mentioned education and so important. I'm wondering, have you had some initiatives to educate the broader community, for example, you know, in, in those electorates where we have those very, you know, right wing, uh, Christian right uh, candidates and or representatives? Uh, it's really important, I think, that another voice is in the community itself so people aren't kind of sucked in by some of that rhetoric. So are you doing things at that level? community level yeah so um not sort of specifically in in some of those key areas what we're aiming to do is to spread the word about this election guide with other key human rights groups including lgbtiq groups and continuing engaging with the media to get the word out there and for as many people to be aware of some of those as you say the right-wing um candidates and what they stand for because um, it's not just in Ringwood. There are other um, uh, candidates in other areas. And as usual, I, I feel that social media and the mainstream media is a great way to, to try to get that message spread far and wide. Yes, well, I think it is really important. Yeah, definitely. And you um, spoke about um, the importance of the way the laws are enforced. I'm wondering um, uh, what the response has been like from the police so far since um, we've had the uh, decriminalisation bill introduced. Well, it's funny you mention that, Ella, because 
the, the, the previous laws, uh, there was a unit, a dedicated unit called the Sex Industry Coordination Unit that's sole focus was to enforce sex work laws. And now that those laws will be repealed at the end of next year, which is the date at which they'll actually go away, mm. that unit will be disbanded. And so the feedback that, that, that I'm uh, receiving is that the officers in that unit are a little bit worried about um, where they're going to be going and what they're going to be doing. So uh, there'll be some changes in the way that police look at sex work, how mm. they organise their units, and I'm hoping that it will be a slow step towards changing, as I said, how police view sex workers as members of society and as victims of crime who should be believed and taken seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe some of these resources that have um, previously been used to um, yeah, enact laws and um, keep sex workers in line, I say that in inverted commas, can now be uh, yeah, repurposed to uh, educate the Victorian police. We'll see. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering more about the uh, process, I guess more... Um, personally, in a way, for you and for the other um, people working with Sex Work Law Reform Victoria, uh, what the process of putting together this election guide was like. I imagine it was kind of a, a time of reflection and of mixed emotions, kind of looking back at the way politicians have um, paved and acted on these laws. Can you speak a bit about that for us? Yes, it was It was truly a trip down memory lane. And it was at times quite emotional because we, we forgot some of the encounters that we had and I'd actually forgotten how much all the members of our team had done in and out of Parliament. So it was a matter of sitting down many hours going over Hansard, the parliamentary record, uh, looking at those voting records and who voted how and when, and then just reflecting on all the different people that we'd met. And, of course, we could remember some of the, the bad ones um, and focus on that but it was it was just going through many of, the, of our records and, and the public record and and then just sort of going okay we've got this list here how do we, who do we think is best and worst and then it was um allocating sort of a rank based on their overall performance so it was a fascinating and weeks of late night process ella i can <laughs> say i i a little bit slept surprised for about two weeks there but in the end, I, th I think it was it was worth it because it's a really well put together thorough guide. It's fully referenced. It's accessible and easy to read. And for any of your listeners, it's available at sexworklawreformvictoria.org.au. Excellent. And yeah, I can't think of a um, more qualified person to put together a list like this, Matthew. Obviously, um, yeah, you work tirelessly in this space and I um, haven't met many people more meticulous than you. I don't think there's any fine print too fine for you. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward <laughs> to having a good read through it later and sharing it on our page. Um, no, I think we're going to have to wrap up. But, yeah, we will post that link on our page. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me, Ella and Judith. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much. And that was Matthew Roberts, a policy advisor with Sex Work Law Reform Victoria, joining us to talk us through their latest election guide.
and the decriminalization that that's such a huge achievement and i know yeah. there's other states still working on that 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 haven't got there so yeah really i think victoria can be very proud on that one yeah absolutely and i think when you're um uh, seeking policy change you're coming up against bureaucracy which can be a pretty um thankless yeah. and tiring to us sometimes so i think when you have yeah mm. moments like this year um you see what it's all for and why it's, yeah. why it's worth it and yeah. yeah, just as an observer for me, seeing it in um, Parliament this Must year. Must have been really, so exciting um, to be in Parliament in that moment. Yeah, that was, was there like, too, oh, I yeah. understand, yeah. Yeah, it feels like you have so many, there's so much words and politics can be so much talking around an issue. So it was really kind of yeah. a nice reminder of when you actually, yeah, have action and, um, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and being in Parliament is just, it's always a very great opportunity to, um spread your voice and you know when once you're in there it gets you in the mood and it also really lets you be passionate about what you want to talk about and i think it's it's just so amazing that they got to go there and share about what they need to share it's just really amazing i mean i've been in parliament as well and i can understand that feeling yeah yeah i hadn't been since high school i think so oh, well. experience for me, <laughs> I, I haven't been at all so that's something i should put on my list of things especially when an issue that i feel passionately about is coming up yeah and i'm yeah. sure there will be yeah mm-hmm. yeah Definitely. We've had such a busy morning. Yeah, we did. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't get through without speaker for um, Zelda Grimshaw for our updates on Disrupt Land Forces. Um, time difference is a bummer, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, so daylight savings. In Brisbane, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, for the past weeks, 3CR has been updating coverage on the recent Disrupt Land Force Expo that highlights um, resistance to militarization in Australia. It was actually a a really good success. Two VIP presentations were cancelled. There were reduced number of participants overall and massive increase in cops in security. And also harm dealers were intimidated by the truth-telling and harm dealers were also failing to stuff their stalls. So um, this was based on an update from Disrupt's Land Forces Instagram. So, um, to learn more about, um, to listen back to the TreeCR coverage on DFL 2022, you can head on to au slash disrupt land forces 2022. Excellent. Yeah. yeah and 3CRs all over yes. disrupt land forces. So I'm sure there'll be more updates to come. <laughs> yeah. And I also just want to um, go back to um, our very first interview with Jeff Rawlinson on the, um, Stop the Quarry campaign, save the Hopkins River. They have a website, so if you can, you Google um, um, stop save you know stop the quarry, save the Hopkins River, or possibly vice versa, but it won't be hard to find, and you might want to just check that out and what's going on there. Excellent, lovely. All right, and I think that's all we've got time for this morning. So thanks very much for tuning in. Thanks, Grace yeah, and Thanks Jeff. to all our guests, yeah. Alan. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. Been a pleasure. Um, and yeah, stick around for Stick Together Wednesday Breakfast. We'll be back next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.